Hello. Thank you so much for tuning in to Purifying Truths. It is a pleasure having you with us today. And today we have with us Dr. Kevin Payne. Welcome to Purifying Truths, Dr. Payne. Well, thank you so much. I was I was just kind of grooving to your snazzy intro music there. Oh like my. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, for those of you who are not aware, Dr. Payne actually um, has multiple sclerosis. And um, he has been through quite a few things in his life. But this is not a sob story. This is a story of triumph, of course, being on Purifying Truths. And he's going to tell us a little bit about his journey and what he's doing now. So let's jump right in. Dr. Payne, please tell us how you found out that you had multiple sclerosis. <laughs> you, like many people with MS... I lived with kind of weird symptoms about the edges of my life for a long time. So, you know, in retrospect now, it's easy to see that, that my symptoms actually started when I was in college in 1989. And I, I, I was misdiagnosed at the time, and I didn't kind of worry about it because relapsing, remitting MS comes and goes. Uh -huh. So you have the symptoms and then they kind of disappear and then you have some symptoms and they disappear. And then, you know, eventually some of those symptoms just kind of hang around. Uh -huh. And so it was off and on and off and on for a while. And I had a couple of relatively bad incidents, but the thing that led to my diagnosis was in 2002 I woke up one morning and I couldn't feel my left leg below my knee. Wow. It was, it was just gone. I, you know, no feeling. So, uh, and then I thought I'd overdone my workout, maybe pinched a nerve and, and just kind of shook it off and went through my life. And, and a few days later, I could feel my leg again. And then it was gone again, and then it was there, and then other parts of my body started disappearing, and then finally one day I woke up, and I could feel my right arm and my head, but the rest of my body was gone. Wow. And, and at that point, my then wife said, I'm putting my foot down, you're going to go get this looked at. So I did, and it was, it was the weirdest physician visit I had had up to that point because he was asking me to do things I, I'd never been asked to do before. So he was asking me, can I walk a straight line? Can I touch my nose? Do all kinds of things. And so finally he said, I'm not exactly sure what this is. We're sending you to a neurologist. Uh -huh. So I went to a neurologist and he ordered an MRI and a bunch of tests and, and uh, I went through those things and he said, well, one thing you're going to be really glad to know is that it is not multiple sclerosis <gasps> because, because that was the biggest, baddest, ickiest possibility that had been floated up to that point. So he said, but just to be certain, we've got a new MRI in the region and it's got a better resolution and I'm going to send you for another MRI and if there's 
anything that we learn from it, my office will call you. Otherwise, come back in three months and we'll check in and see what's going on. So I did the MRI. I didn't hear anything from his office. And the time for the follow-up was approaching. And I was thinking, you know, I'm not going to get any more information out of this. But I decided, okay, I'll go anyway. And so I did. And and I, I walk in and, and I'm sitting in the office there waiting. And he kind of breezes in with a really thick paper file. And of course, that tells you how long ago this was because he still had a really thick paper <laughs> file. <laughs> no EMRs yet. Uh-huh. So he sits down in front of me and he opens the file and he starts leafing through the pages. And I swear... He does a wild-eyed double-take at my file. Now, Uh you never want your neurologist to do a wild-eyed double-take at your file. So so he says to me, excuse me, I've got to go check something. I'll be right back. And he rushes out of the office. Uh. So I'm sitting there waiting, and this is like the longest five minutes of my life. And he he comes back in and... Mm -hmm. He kind of slumps down in front of me, and he's looking a bit chagrined, and he says, I'm so sorry. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, that's never good. Somebody in my office should have called you. There's no doubt it's MS. (gasps) So it, it turned out that with the better resolution, it was clear that there were a lot of lesions in my brain and spinal cord they were just all really small at the time, uh-huh. but they were all over the place. So that was welcome to MS for me. And what a way to find out. Yeah, yeah. And, and like so many, MS is, is often misdiagnosed or it's a difficult diagnosis to get to because it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So they have to go through, you know, every other possibility for those kinds of symptoms until, yeah, it's, it's MS. Uh-huh. So, you know, that, that's how I found out. Did you feel some sort of relief that at least now you knew what it was? Well, yeah, and, and, I, and I talk about this in my book. I mean, the book is, is mostly science, but in between each of the substantive chapters, I tell my story. So I tell episodes from this, and, and uh, it was overwhelming. It uh-huh. was... Uh, you know, disillusioning and depressing, but it was also something I was thankful for as well, because now at least I had a name for all the weirdness. Uh-huh. And if I had, you know, if I had a name for it, then I could learn more about it and I could start maybe trying to figure out some ways to, to deal with it proactively. Understood. That's one way to look at it. And I'm sure that, you know, you would have done things differently had life not hit you in several different directions all at once. Tell us what else was going on at the time. Yeah. So as uh, so through this period, when I'm dealing with this weirdness and getting diagnosed and then coming through and, and, you know, on the other side of that, then I had a really serious exacerbation that, and, and some other incidents. So, so my condition was definitely getting worse. 
But at the same time, my then wife, and, and we had two little kids at the time. So uh, we have all the stresses of little kids. We have little stresses, the stresses of her trying to get a business off the ground. We have the stresses of me being a professor at the time and managing a, a large academic department with 150 instructors and like 10,000 student enrollments in, in a year, plus teaching 11 courses a year. And so, you know, I'm overworked and I'm doing all this stuff and her health is getting weird as well. Uh-huh. So she gets diagnosed with a migraine. And, and it's true, she was having crippling headaches, you know, the kind that leave you sobbing, shaking, and, and just collapsed on the floor. Uh, oh, just, yeah. You know, really awful headaches. So she trialed 20 drugs over a span of two years. And she kept getting worse, and she kept getting worse, and then her blood pressure started getting weird. Now, you have to remember, you know, at this time, we're a... A relatively young couple, we're in our 30s, and we, uh, uh, you know, both exercise and eat right and, and do all those things. So uh, they couldn't figure out what it was. So finally that year, and this is you know, about a decade ago now, we ended up in the ER the day after Thanksgiving, and her blood pressure was completely out of control. And, and they couldn't figure out why this was doing it. So they, they kept her and they ran lots of tests and they finally put her on drugs to control her blood pressure that was like, it was the dosage for a man twice her size. Wow. So, so it wasn't the kind of, of drug that she could stay on for long. And then they gave us a, they gave us an appointment with, a urologic oncologist at the local uh, university hospital. Okay, so uh -huh. that's not a that's not an appointment you want to receive. So we're there the day before, uh, two days before Christmas. Then that year, and he kind of whisks into us, and without any prologue or anything just says, it's a pretty bad cancer. And if it weren't for the holidays, he said, I would admit you today and you would be in surgery this afternoon. As it is, and this is a direct quote, he said, as it is, I will give you the weekend to celebrate the holiday with your family and put your affairs in order. Hmm. And Monday morning, you're coming in, and we're taking your right kidney. So, you know, wow. So, so we did all that, and, and it was supposed to be a three-hour surgery. There were complications. It lasted over five. And I'm sitting there in the uh, waiting room, you know, waiting. And once they finally did it, they found, after they did the biopsy, they found out her Right kidney was 9.3 centimeters long. The tumor was 8.8. .8, and ah. it was very late stage three. And it had been growing in her abdomen for 14 years. Wow. And if they, and if they hadn't taken it then, 
she wouldn't have made it to Valentine's Day. And all of this happened almost, it was 10 years almost to the day that she sat and watched her mother die of cancer. Oh, no. So there was, and, and so literally we went from years of, of mystery illness where, and, and I know you, you know, you've been around long enough, you know, that when people are dying of, of, of certain conditions, they just, you can tell. Uh-huh. And, and she had been dying for the last couple of years and it was quite obvious and we hadn't gotten any answers. And of course, you know, with MS, you're supposed to, they always say avoid stress. And I think that's a, a silly uh, recommendation because life is stressful and, uh-huh. and all the good things are stressful too. And <laughs> good stress and bad stress. And that's so, true. you know, and that's, that's, that's a big topic in my book. But so we got her through. And so we went from it's a pretty bad cancer to you're cured over a weekend. Wow. And he literally said, yeah, we got it all, and you'll be recovered in six months, and you'll be back to normal. So it turned out that it was a much longer, much more difficult recovery than uh, anybody had imagined. And, and so, you know, through all this, then, I'm trying to leave the academy and, and you know, the safest job in the world as a, as a tenure-track academic to the risky life of a startup tech entrepreneur. Because from my research over the years, I'd had a technology that I wanted to get out into the market. Uh-huh. So <clears throat> we're going through all this, and it's very stressful. And as I'm going to launch this company, I have a massive exacerbation that is different from any that I'd had before. And it was primarily cognitive. Oh, man. So now, suddenly, we're without a net. And this new company that, that I'm working on and depends on my brain working, uh, suddenly my brain is not. Hmm. And and everything kind of exploded. Your health, your wife's health, your career, as if that was not enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you'll just share a little more, because, you know, my heart goes out to you and it seems as though it was never ending. And as I learn of your story, I'm, I'm like, wow, when is it going to stop? But there is a light at the end of the tunnel. But I understand that you also had seeming like nature also working against you. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, things got worse and worse. And, you know, one of the things, you know, my family was trying really hard. But multiple sclerosis is a scary disease. And it's not just scary to live with, it's, you know, as the person with the diagnosis, it's scary to be around because uh-huh. it's extraordinarily unpredictable. And so my wife and my kids were, were really trying, and I was really trying. But 
eventually, you know, it's like I have no choice. I have to live with it. But sometimes the, even the people you love get to the point where they can't anymore. So my wife and kids left. Wow. They said, this is, this is too much. And so they left. So I'm alone. And the only thing that, that I'm hanging on to is my dog and, and a little black rescue kitty uh, that uh, the wife and kids had brought home uh, from uh, who, who is actually coming to visit me right now, even as I say this. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and so it's just me and I'm hanging on, you know, by the skin of my teeth here. And then one day, I don't know if you have had big dogs before, but I've always had Akitas. And one of the things that can happen with a large breed dog with those big barrel chests is something called bloat or gastric torsion. And that's when, and there's no way to predict it. And uh, what happened was you know, his stomach detached from its lining and it twists. And this happens on, and there's the dog running through. Just as I say, this is not that dog. This is my next Akita after that. Uh, so poor Nemo, he, this happened late on a Sunday night. And so it, and it's extraordinarily painful because his stomach twists mm -hmm. inside their body and everything backs up and, they become really distended, so I had to like, you know, my MS was not doing well at the time, and I had to find a way to pick up a 120-pound dog and put him in my truck, and I'm racing to the emergency 24-hour ER vet, right? And I, I'm, I'm just kind of screaming at the phone at, at them saying, you know, have a gurney ready, I'll be coming in hot, and... They were there, and, and we got him on there, and they, and they tried everything they could, and they couldn't save him. Oh, and no. So he died right there. You know, of course, I was with him and, and trying to comfort him, and, and he died right there. And so after all of the trauma of the previous few years and my MS going through this really awful exacerbation and the family leaving, and now my dog died. I mean, I couldn't protect my family. I couldn't save myself. I couldn't save my dog. And I, I was really at bottom. And, and, and then just, just a few days later, we're going through a, a torrential storm and the water's just standing. It's, it's so bad. And when the wind and rain come from a particular side of my house, it it starts flooding my storage room. So I have the back door open to the storage room and I'm, I'm pumping it out and I'm standing there outside under the overhang. And I swear lightning strikes this oh, 70, 80 year old Oak tree. That's about 40 yards away from me. And it's, it's, you know, everything just goes bright I, I go deaf for a second. I go blind for a second because of that. Every, 
all the hairs mm. on my body raise and you know I felt woozy for for the next few hours uh, so so I just really felt like the world was out to get me I can only imagine <laughs> and you lost so much in such a small period of time you know many times when we go through traumas and tragedies we spend time in the trenches sulking and feeling sorry for ourselves, but you actually decided that this is it. You, you're done and you're going to do something about it. And so what even inspired you to do something? Well, in, in the first place, I mean, I, I, I was feeling really sorry for myself and I did pretty much give up. And there's, there, there came a point where I was just out of emotion. I had, I had just been through it and, and I was emotionally numb and I couldn't see a path to a life that I was interested in living at that point, because all the stuff that, that I cared about with life had just gone. So, my son then was a tween. He was what, 13, 14 years old, uh, you know, here at the time. Uh-huh. One day he said to me, Dad, you really suck at doing things for yourself. Out of the mouth of babes. Yeah. And, and that was really crushing too, you know, because uh, on the one hand, I knew he was right because I had become, I had become scared of my own body. I mean, uh -huh. there were just, you know, too many times where, and I'm not going to go through all the laundry list of stuff, but you know, where I'd ended up like paralyzed on the ground or, uh -huh. you know, things like that from, from MS exacerbations. Uh -huh. And I had no confidence in myself, and, and I naturally have a lot of confidence, but, but it had been worn away from years of these things. Uh -huh. So one of the dreams that I had given up on was becoming a skydiver. Now, I had, I had this was a childhood dream. From the time I was a kid back in the 70s, saw a skydiver, was absolutely enamored, tried like a lot of us who become skydivers, making my own parachutes and jumping off really <laughs> high stuff and doing stupid things. And I bent myself pretty good, but I didn't break myself too bad. So uh, by the time I got to the 90s, then I'm working on my doctorate and I decide I really want to become a skydiver. And you have to realize, you know, tandem jumps were not an option at this time. So this was, you know, tandems were invented in the 80s and, and they didn't really become common every place until the 21st century. Uh -huh. So I had to find a, a little club skydiving drop zone. And there was one a couple of hours away. And so I went through all the training and my first jump was a solo jump because that's what you did. 
So I, I, I did what's called an IAD jump, an instructor-assisted deploy jump. So you come in over the, over the uh, drop zone and you crawl out, grabbing the strut, and the instructor deploys your pilot chute into the wind and you get ripped off the plane and you are, you know, it's good luck. You've got to pilot yourself to the ground and not die. So <laughs> that, that was my first jump. And, and I got a handful of jumps in, in the 90s. But then uh, my, you know, I, I had to finish the doctorate and so education got in the way and, and uh, then it was family and kids and career and MS. And I eventually got to the point where I, you know, my body won't allow me to do this. So when my son said, you really suck at doing things for yourself. I was like, if it's, it's so bad that, that he's noticing then. And of course he, he's a pretty observant uh, kid, uh -huh. but uh, I need to, I really need to do something about my self-care. And so I decided I'm going to go back and I'm going to figure out a way, even with my wonky body where I can't feel my legs, I'm going to figure out a way to skydive. And that was pretty difficult because you've got to be able to control your legs in free fall. And if you don't understand where they're at, that's kind of difficult. So I had to learn how to figure out where my lower legs were by the tension behind my knees. Uh-huh. So, and, and I had to learn how to stand up a landing on a parachute without being able to feel that my feet had touched the ground. Amongst all of the other things that, that, uh, were challenges that MS was giving me with cog fog and uh -huh. tiredness and, you know, medical fatigue. And, and I'm always doing this through pain. I always itch. Talk about annoying. I always itch all over my body. Well, there was an adjustment, you know, from the sulking, I'm sorry for myself and I'm yeah. emotionally numb to, I'm going to, um, go ahead and master and this skill and become a skydiver. What do you attribute that paradigm shift to? Well, it was, it was, it was using my science. I mean, uh -huh. because I, I'm, I'm, you know, I knew all the research on behavioral change and mindset change, and I'd been studying it and doing it for, for a long time. And so what I had to realize, I call it the edge in the book and and the edge is a ratio between what a task is demanding of us and what capacity we have to give at that time and if our capacity is way over the demand then we're deep in our comfort zone and it's easy for us to do but as it gets closer and they're more equal that's the edge so at that point, you're delivering as much as you can and still succeed. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And what I understood is I had to build my capacities and I had to become more comfortable because on the other side of that, when the demand is, is a little bit higher than your capacity, 
you're going to fail and it's going to feel like overwhelm. That's what overwhelm is. Trauma then is when the demand is a lot higher than our capacity at that point. Uh huh. So I realized I'm going to have to go back to the beginning and be very basic and Fortunately, I had a really good team of instructors at our drop zone that were willing to work with me and, and keep up. And I had a couple of the instructors afterwards say that is one of the most terrifying skydives I've ever been on because I was having so much trouble figuring out how to control my legs in free fall. Uh-huh. It normally takes 25 jumps to become a licensed. And that's the first license in skydiving. Uh-huh. It took me 47 before oh I got mine. Yeah. And, and of course now, you know, I've, I've, I've logged 600 jumps. I've got all the licenses. I've got a coach rating, uh, you know, last year in 2020. So in 2019, I got my license and I, I logged a little over hundred jumps that year. And then, so in 2020 during COVID, I decided I'm going to set another goal. My goal this year is I'm going to jump better than one a day for the entire year. So I wanted to jump at least 366 times during 2020. And I managed 370. Wow. That's amazing. That's a lot of jumps, even by skydiver standards. Yes. that's, That's a respectable amount. With, with MS, though. Right. And, and the thing they always tell you about MS is avoid stress. Mm-hmm. And I think that's wrong. That's, that is wrong-headed advice because stress, we, we can't see stress as the fight-or-flight response. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more going on to that and, and, and really. Uh, but stress is our challenge response. So anytime we th- our, our primal brain thinks that we're going to be challenged, in other words, that we've got to ramp our systems up to perform and that there's a chance that we may not succeed, that's what that acute stress response is. It's ramping our body up for immediate challenge. And there are two kinds of stress. There's good stress and bad stress. There's eustress, good stress, and bad stress, distress. And all of the good things, falling in love with someone, that same reaction excites us, right? Uh And we get that eustress. Becoming accomplished at some activity, whether that's learning to play the piano or, or solve a math problem or whatever it is, every time we learn and grow, there's stress involved. It's good stress. True. So because I had become fearful of my own body, I decided that not only am I, I going back to skydiving to reclaim this childhood dream, but I want to go back because I want to challenge myself to become confident in my own body again within the limits that, you know, my condition is going to put on me because I can, I can go only so far. But, but my idea was if I can 
fling my carcass out of an airplane to the earth at 120, 150, 200 miles an hour and save myself every time. Make that active decision to deploy my parachute, save myself, land it on target every time, then I can be confident that I am up to whatever other challenges life is going to throw at me. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's something that many of us that have not been through any of the things that you've been through haven't done um, is, is skydive. I know so many are even afraid to board a plane. So um, big it's accomplishment. Fear. Yeah, Absolutely. Fear. You know, there's, there's, now, there's... extreme exposure therapy. I know you speak <laughs> of that. I want you to just give us a little bit of your definition of extreme exposure therapy. So one of the things that, that, I really became interested in was this this idea of the edge, okay? And, uh-huh. and what we have to understand is, so my extreme may be way out there, skydiving, you know, every day for a year. Uh, but I've got some really close edges as well that are that are that are so easy for other people that they may even be kind of humiliating you know sometimes my legs aren't working well and it's a challenge for me to walk across the room and so what i want people to understand is that wherever there is an edge for you and it could be a physical edge it could be a cognitive edge it could be an emotional edge it could be a social edge because this is not only where fear is, but it's also where joy and learning and growth are at as well. Because you've, you've got to test your edge to grow. Same uh-huh. way that you, you lift weights to, to build your muscles, you solve new problems to build your brain, you go through uh, intimate experiences to build relationships with others, it's all the edge. Uh-huh. And for you, wherever that is, even if it's not for everybody else, that is an extremity for you. And, and you have to gently test those edges to stimulate the growth and the learning. And, and one of the frustrating things with my MS is I will build an edge out. I'll build that capacity and then an exacerbation will come along and it will sweep some of that, that progress away. Well, I can't be all upset about it. I've, I've got to acknowledge where my new edge is and start the rebuilding. Uh-huh. And- I love it. I absolutely love that. And with that, you know, is something that all of us can do regardless of what we're going through. Like you said, it doesn't have to be something that's physical or, or mental. I mean, it can be in, in everyday life. It could be mm-hmm. as simple as, you know, trying new foods, <laughs> you yeah. know, something, something just that simple. Um, but it certainly is a concept that we can take with us. Um, please tell us Dr. Payne about how you have did this research where you can help 
others improve their quality of life, even when they have a chronic illness or a health condition that won't get better? Well, you know, I started by turning myself into a guinea pig, of course, uh, and because uh-huh. I'm a data guy, and and I started collecting all oh, around eighty variables on myself every day and running mathematical models and trying to predict, wow. you know, what was happening. So, so then, of course, you know, I understood that you can't generalize from an end of one. So, I interviewed hundreds, I surveyed thousands, I built a scraper that went out on the open web and collected 2.23 million data points. I did pooled and meta-analyses across thousands of studies on hundreds of conditions because I'm an obsessive research geek. And, <laughs> and, and I was interested in a slightly different question. Most of the people who are doing research in these areas tend to focus on one particular condition. And that's really great. You know, they're looking at, well, what's going on with MS or what's going on with diabetes. And as a social psychologist, I was interested in a slightly different question. I was interested in how do we cope with the experience of living with a condition that's never going to get better? Because that can seem hopeless if we don't frame it in the right way. And, and so I was interested in, well, how do we rebuild trust in ourselves? How do we rebuild that hope? How do we still find ways, even though we have to accommodate real hard limits with our conditions? Uh-huh. How, do, how do we build ourselves as much as possible And then how do we creatively accommodate some of these other ways to get to where we want to be? So like for me, learning to skydive, it took me a lot of extra instruction. It took me a lot of time in the vertical wind tunnel. You may have seen people doing that indoor skydiving. Yes. So I had to go there and have an instructor just like physically hold my legs in place and say, this is the angle that you want where I'm in the wind and he's holding it in place and I'm looking to see, well, what signals can I decipher from my body out of this? Uh Uh And, And by putting in a lot of that extra effort, you know, hours in the tunnel and lots of extra jumps, I was able to figure out how to compensate for the limitations that I can't get around with my body. Right. Understood. And, you know, just the fact that you had the willingness and the endurance to do that says so much and is such an encouragement to all of us. Um, I understand that you didn't stop there. You know, you're also a podcast host. You also wrote a book. Tell us what's next for you. Well, uh, the next thing is, I mean, right now we're, we're getting the seminars because I do, I do, uh, I've got 24 different seminars that I do on aspects of this. So, and, the, and they are for people living with chronic conditions, for their loved ones and caregivers, and then also to train medical health, wellness, and social service personnel how to better do their jobs with people who are not going to get better. 
Yes, yes, and that is definitely needed. Um, wow. Will be will yeah. be a great benefit. And oh then wow! Sometime late next year, the app will come out, and that's so. I'm you know I'm a data scientist. I've built a lot of of models, and and what what I'm really interested in is if you live with a chronic health condition, then part of getting to a place where your life is better and you like it is going to mean you doing things differently. Uh-huh. So it's going to be behavioral change and mindset change. Yes. And, and it turns out that there are about 150 different ways to change your behavior. And all of those will work for someone, but only some of them will work for you. Yes, I agree. I agree. So, and you have to sift through and right. find the one for you. But this technology is about streamlining that process, uh-huh. profiling you so that we can say, oh, this is the most likely strategy you can use to change this behavior. That would and be then, phenomenal. Oh, my yeah, goodness. And then monitoring them with that. And then if they're on the right trajectory, good. Keep them on that. If not, switch them to the next most likely strategy that's uh-huh. going to work for people like them in their circumstance. Wow. You have your hands full, and definitely you are doing something that is needed. You're breaking barriers for so many that thought that, you know, this is it. This is my portion. This is all I can do. Um, You're showing that really the sky, um, no pun intended, but the sky (laughs) is the limit, Um, or maybe not the limit. Please tell us the name of your book. Yeah, it, the 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 well. First, I just want to say you're very kind, and and from my perspective, there are so many of us out there that are now challenging our limits and are are lending our voices to this conversation, yes. and everybody should be celebrated for that. And and if some people see my example and they find that you know, inspiring. Well, that's cool. But I'm more interested in what we do after the inspiration fades. How do yes. we keep it going? Uh-huh. And so the book is called Your Life Lived Well. The company and everything else is, you know, my podcast is called Your Life Lived Well. And if you go to yourlifelivedwell.co, uh, you'll find it. You'll even see a snazzy commercial we shot in Freefall. There. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so your life lived well. I believe you said it's coming out in February. It's coming out February 7th. Uh-huh. And if you go to the website right now, you can download a 100-page preview and we will notify you of other cool things as we get closer to the time when the book drops. Amazing, amazing. Well, please Please go and check out Your Life Lived Well. You will not regret it. The book also has excerpts from your life as well as science. So we get the best of both worlds. Um, Tell us, if the audience wanted to connect with you, how can they do so? Uh, Gosh, if they go to yourlifelivedwell.co, then all the social media links are there. Uh, Uh I I am personally... I'm Dr. KJ Payne, D-R-K-J-P-A-Y-N-E on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You know, it's, it's, I tried to make it easy. 
for people. Yes. Dr. KJ Payne on mm-hmm. all social media aspects. And then, of course, your life lived well. It has been a pleasure having you on Purifying Truths, Dr. Plain. We have learned so much. I know I have learned so much. You've opened up our eyes to what's possible. Um, Many times, even with myself in the medical field, when we hear a diagnosis, we've kind of already started digging the grave for lack of a better term and you've you've shown that no 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 plant you some flowers there I got more life to live and I love it I love it that you've kind of changed that aspect and so now you know I I unfortunately still have to deliver news but you know it's not necessarily the worst case scenario because now I know that there's a possibility that you can do so much more than what's was done previous decades ago life is marvelously adaptive and if you let it life will find a way i believe it i believe it in all aspects truly yeah truly life is marvelous marvelously adaptive i love it that's my new quote (laughs) if if i may borrow (laughs) you you may certainly borrow I love it. All right. Well, once again, thank you so much for tuning in to Purifying Truths. Please, please, please check out the website. And thank you so much for joining us today, Doc. Thank you so much. This has been a delightful conversation and best of luck in your work. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to Purifying Truths with A-Star. Tune in every Saturday at 9 and noon for exciting new guests who illuminate the world in the various facets of life. You too can connect with A Star. Facebook and Instagram at Facets of a Star. Please visit the website www.facetsofastar.com. Shine bright.